Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And we're here, as we are every Saturday at 9 in the morning, to talk with you about the markets and the economy and hopefully to provide you some good insights so that you can make some fine, informed decisions about your investments and what to do with managing your money. Now, we had a pretty interesting week this week. Now, there wasn't very much trading. This is definitely the dog days of summer back in New York. And I kid about that. There's just, you know, about 14 people on the floor. Well, that's not true. But there's just not very much activity. Everybody's, uh, as they say in New York, uh, at the shore. And so uh, they're not paying much attention to the markets, but very few reports. However, stocks have done very well. We've got some great economic reports. And so let's get into it. Um, Tuesday, we'll get reports on new home sales, consumer confidence, Wednesday, durable goods. Thursday, we'll get the next update of the uh, second quarter GDP figures, which will still likely be pretty terrible. And we'll also get another jobless claims report. But I forgot. Yesterday, the Dow closed at 27,930. S&P, after setting a new high at 3,397. The Nasdaq also having set a new high at 11,311. Gold at $1,939 an ounce, silver at $2,671 an ounce. We had crude at $4,234 a barrel. The 10-year treasury was bid at 0.65% and soft white wheat quoted $535 a bushel. Now, we again, we had some great stock news uh, this week, but I want to get into the economic reports because uh, they don't get much publicity. I mean, these these aren't really you know, <laughs> sexy reports that are going to generate headlines. Uh, you know, housing starts, manufacturers growth. Oh, goody! No, they're not going to knock off uh, the uh, latest whatever kind of news is out there. But for the most part, I think you really need to know that there's a lot of good stuff going on in the economy. A lot of real solid growth. This is not smoke and mirrors. This is not the Fed blow, you know, blowing up uh, liquidity. No, no. This is just legitimate growth. So let's get into this here. Now, the Fed, by the way, did release their meetings, excuse me, minutes of their last meeting this last week. And the one phrase that uh, was focused on is this one, and I'm quoting uh, again this from the Fed. The ongoing public health crisis would weigh heavily on economic activity, employment, and inflation in the near term, and posing considerable risk to the economic outlook over the medium term, unquote. Well, gosh, I don't know if we need to be on the Fed to make those rather obvious statements, but anyhow, that was what they said. But more to the point now, manufacturer's growth. This report just came out yesterday. Manufacturer's growth jumped this month to its fastest improvement since January of last year. So here's a great solid sign that the economy is recovering from this virus damage. The uh, Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index is what they call the PMI, jumped to a 19-month high. This according to IHS Market. Now, C.N. Jones, who is the economist at IHS Market, had this to say. Uh, August data pointed to a further improvement in business conditions across the private sector as client demand picked up among both manufacturers and service providers. Notably, the renewed increase in sales among service sector firms was welcome news following five months of declines, unquote. Yeah, so that's pretty good because the manufacturing sector has been under big pressure for a while now. 
Now, here's something, though, that I think is just kind of endemic of a real broad upswell that's going on. Confidence of builders in the newly built single-family home market jumped in August. This according to National Association of Home Builders Wells Fargo Housing Market Index. Now at its highest level in 35 years. It matched the record going back to December of 1998. Now these builders, they don't just have confidence because it's summer or whatever. Uh, you know, I think, see, let me give you some of the reasons. Uh, and again, these are economic reports. Home building continued to be a bright spot in the economy in July. Largest monthly gain since 2016. And as I said earlier, e easily beating even the most optimistic forecast by any economic groups. You know, following three consecutive monthly double-digit percentage gains, housing starts are now just a little bit shy of a full V-shaped recovery. We're now only 4.5% below February levels. So housing starts reached 1.496 million in July. They were expecting 1.2 million. So, like I said, you know, just blowing the proverbial doors off. And permits also jumped 18.8%, uh, largest monthly gain since 1990. And these permits were led by single-family units. See, this is solid stuff, folks. This is not, again, smoke, mirrors, you know, just talk. This is legitimate, solid growth. Now, according to the National Association of Realtors, existing home sales in July were up 24.7% compared with June and 8.7% year over year. That's the biggest monthly jump on record going back to 1968. Now, one of the challenges, the average selling price has risen to 304100 That's also the highest price on record, even when accounting for inflation. Uh, Lawrence Young, who is uh, the uh, Association Realtors Chief Economist, says, and I'm quoting, the housing market is actually past the recovery phase. It's now in a booming stage. I don't know about booming, but it's certainly past the recovery stage. And, you know, it's also important, I think, to remember that existing home sales are counted at the closing so this jump of 24.7 percent in july was contracts that were signed in june and as you may recall the second wave of virus cases was uh, uh, going across the country and so this is in spite of that i guess you could say now one major contributor to the recent recovery has been the fed's liquidity policies yeah we know that the 30-year fixed mortgage rates are now around three percent could certainly boosts affordability. The 15-year rate is around 2.6%. Matter of fact, demand for existing homes has been so strong, 68% of homes sold in July were on the market for less than a month. <laughs> and if you're trying to buy a house, you know that that is actually true. And, and that sales do face an increasing headwind, again, from the low inventory, as well as uh, this rising demand basically sucks up whatever uh, new listings you're getting. And it shows that inventories are lower than any other July on record, any other July, and down 20%, 21% versus a year ago. So this is why, again, the, uh, uh, the median prices grow, uh, go up because there aren't that many houses, the ones that are there, you know, supply, demand, it's, all, it's always the way it works. And so with employment growing and new and future construction boosting inventories, uh, an easy Fed to keep rates low for the foreseeable future, 
I think you can really uh, expect the housing market to continue to improve. And as we'll see when we talk uh, about some of these stock moves, uh, Walmart, no, excuse me, Home Depot and Lowe's, uh, tremendous growth. And that's all due to the fact that folks are expanding their homes, uh, you know, doing uh, cleanup, paint up, fix up stuff. So there's been a lot of that going on and look for it to continue, in my opinion. You, you see, there's also kind of a ripple effect because this kind of data, all of it together, is is really a key indicator for the health of U.S. consumers and the economy more broadly. Because think about it, construction employment and consumer spending on furniture, appliances, home improvement have outperformed other sectors. And again, it helps to grow the GDP. And although housing as an entity uh, accounts for a relatively small share of GDP, its effect on the broader economy is very wide. So it has this ripple effect, you know, developers buying uh, furniture and appliances and carpeting and window coverings and gosh knows what else. I mean, it just has a significant uh, uh, ripple effect in the overall economy. So I hope uh, you have some feel that this is <laughs> this growth that's going on out here is not uh, in spite of the economy, in spite of a lack economy that some people are trying to uh, confuse you with. Sorry, it's going on. Again, it just, these kind of things don't get big headlines compared to the flashy newsy story. So uh, just be aware that we've got strength in the economy and it's continuing. And that is one of the reasons why the markets are doing well. I was talking about uh, before the break about how these economic reports are, you know, uh, really uh, should be given some good credibility for uh, uh, the strength of the economy. But, you know, unemployment is over 10 percent, still is. And Apple this last week just cost it, crossed the $2 trillion market value. So how can the market be rallying when, as I said, a lot of people think the economy is supposedly flat on its back and so many people are suffering? Well, it's a good question, and it goes back to the heart of investing. It, it, I, I, there's no no conspiracy. I don't. You can't conspire against the market. You know, the uh, Hunt brothers tried to conspire against the commodity market back in um, the early 80s, and Let's just say it didn't go well for them. If you want to Google their story, just Hunt Brothers and Silver. <laughs> that didn't. That wasn't good. Anyhow, so uh, no dark conspiracy. Two very different trends going on. First, the stock market looks forward because investors try to anticipate things that will happen a few months down the road. However, most of the economic data we get are backward looking. You know, for example, the most recent GDP report well, and the one we're going to be getting this week, covered time period of two to five months ago. I mean, what what possible difference does that make about what's going on in the markets today? And and, and so we, we rarely have a good idea what the economy is actually doing at this particular point in time. You know, most of these uh, reports that we, we give, and matter of fact, the ones I just gave you a little while ago, are, are old news. I mean, you know, it's things that have happened already. It's the index of leading economic indicators that you want to look at for things that are going forward. But that's for another time. 
So, you know, and, and most economic data that we get, especially like the GDP data, are subject to all kinds of revisions. Sometimes data are updated years after the fact. But in any case, the two keys for valuation are earnings, corporate earnings, and interest rates. And as we know, those have gone down rather significantly with the 10-year having reached its all-time low just relatively recently. But you see, low bond yields are good, very good, for stock valuations. And that's because they make bonds a tougher competition for stocks. I mean, it's, you know, if you have low interest rates, who wants to put money in bonds when I can get uh, the same kinds of returns just on straight dividends with some upside potential as opposed to locking some low number up for a number of years. Uh, Technically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But as well as stocks have done, they're still, believe it or not, trailing bonds this year because, remember, bond prices go up as interest rates come down, and interest rates have... (laughs) definitely come down but where they can come down to from here i would say that's pretty low likelihood but um and lower bond yields make it easier for companies to borrow money so yeah with we yield so low why wouldn't they but we should also consider that the economy is no longer shrinking and again i hope that those um, real estate data help give you some insight in that regard i think it's rising at a pretty good clip matter of fact very fast by historical standards this is likely what the market's been anticipating these last month or so. Because according to the Atlanta Fed, they have a what they call a GDP now estimate. And their model sees growth of, and this is not a misprint, of more than 25% for just this quarter. Now remember, we had a drop of something like 30 some odd percent in the last quarter. Now we're talking about a growth uh, at least according to the Atlanta Fed, of 25%, and some folks are looking for higher numbers than that. The bottom line is not to worry about a rising market amid an admittedly squishy economy. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that all the economic reports are just hearts and flowers. That's hardly the case. But one of the best parts of your investing strategy should be to not worry if the current market makes sense or not. Technically, the markets don't hardly ever make sense. But instead, just focus on good companies and or the funds that own them. You'll save yourself a lot of aggravation and headaches. You know, the S&P to this point has had its best 100-day move in history ever. It's up over, well, I think it's like 54% over 100 trading days, taking it to the record high finally, this last week, and this is now the strongest rally in history, and by some measures, it ends the shortest bear market ever. How do you like that? You've been in its history. It's not even Labor Day yet for crying out Pete. We had the biggest rally and the shortest bear market. Oh, my goodness. Um, so the low was on uh, March 23rd, and since then, uh, the S&P's up. As I say, more than 54%. Sure, mostly driven by the big tech stocks. And technically, we're back really to where we were before all the sell-offs started. But there's a lot of sectors that aren't really close to recovering. Now, we know that to be true, too, because, uh, again, not everybody is big tech, are they? Uh, and so uh, I decided I want to see just how we doing uh, in terms of the rest of the market. 
So if you're holding a diversified portfolio, I can guarantee you that you still have some positions that are in the red. Now, here's why. 64% of the S&P is underperforming the index so far this year. And that's by the average underperformance is like 22%. But that 64% underperformance is actually in line with historical numbers. But the magnitude of the underperformance, that minus 22, sounds high. Well, if you do it on an absolute basis uh, and not on a relative basis, the median S&P stock is down just 3.1% year-to-date, and 56% of them are actually above their 200-day moving average. Oh, it's hardly terrible, but it's not great either. But the only thing you really need to know to determine how a stock is performed in 19, or not 1920, but in 2020 is by looking at its market cap. You know, what is its worth? Uh, it's, you do that by numbers of shares outstanding times the price per share. That's called the market cap. And so for the past 100 years... Markets which have seen all-time highs are classic for the type of environment that rewards us for owning stocks, not selling them. Past 100 years, this is not a fly-by-night situation. All-time highs are perfectly normal for this period. We expect more of them, a lot more actually. You know, this is the kind of move that doesn't make sense to many individual investors, or rather, it doesn't make sense for individual investors. I think that's more to the case. But if you're a, an institutional investor, you know, um, a, a mutual fund, a, a, a big bank, uh, whatever, those kinds of folks, um, for what actually moves markets, if the markets are actually making all-time highs and moving higher, and you're a portfolio manager, and you're not really heavily into stocks, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> you're going to be on the, how come I'm not working anymore line? Uh, so it's a chasing game. These institutions wind up chasing their own tails. So what they do is, you know, they're selling positions, but then they have to buy positions in order to keep participating in the market move. And so, and these guys don't pay any attention to price per share. You know, whether it's like Amazon at 2000 or uh, uh, Hecla at five. I mean, they're going to make a decision based on a lot of other things other than price per share. So the fact that stock prices are high, quote unquote, that's not going to slow these folks down in any direction. You know, again, making all time highs causes unwinds and trades. And while that may not necessarily make sense uh, to us as individuals, for an institutional investor, that's how it works. Because if they don't keep up, they're in the, as I said, the, uh, looking for other alternatives line. We're talking about uh, some of the stock news that happened this week, and some of it was pretty darn significant. And let me start with the uh, Bubba Gump Fruit Company, um, known uh, by some people as Apple. Wednesday, it hit a market capitalization of $2 trillion. And that's a lot of iPhones. And it's doubled in valuation in just over two years. It's also the first company to reach $2 trillion in uh, value. Microsoft and Amazon are sniffing at their heels, but not there yet. And just uh, if you're interested, when the stock price was at 467.77, that was the level at which it achieved 
$2 trillion. Uh, and it closed yesterday at 498 and change. So it's, yes, yeah, still very much a $2 trillion company. And it did set an all-time high as well. Oh, you talk about, oh, I mean, how this is something that makes you really cringe. You know, when Apple was founded in on, uh, interestingly enough, April Fool's Day, 1976, there were three guys that started it. Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs, and a gentleman named Ronald Wayne. Now, we don't hear about Ronald Wayne, do we? Well, that's because 10 days after they started, on April 11th, Mr. Wayne sold his 10% back to both of the Steves for $800. I wonder if... <laughs> I that's got to be a tough one to live with. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, buddy. Okay. Now, it, f so far this year, changing gears, so far this year... 44 retailers have filed for bankruptcy. Steinmart, Pier 1 Imports, JCPenney, Sur Le Tab, Neiman Markets, others. What's happening, though, is that this turmoil is actually allowing the strongest retailers to become even stronger as they scoop up market share and customers while leaving the weakest companies even more worse off. You know, it's what they call creative destruction in economics. You know, these companies go by the boards, but the other companies get stronger and bigger and more efficient and more effective. Let's start with America's favorite store, Walmart. They uh, jumped up on Tuesday after the company said that their e-commerce sales in the second quarter jumped up 97%. They earned much better than expected earnings. Uh, however, the stock flipped around uh, during the day. It, it had hit an all-time high on Tuesday, but wound up dropping uh, by about uh, 1% at the close. And he's like, what? How is that? Well, what the analysts were saying is, okay, Walmart, you know, you had a great quarter because everybody's locked up in jail and, you know, you got to get, uh, you know, a lot of online stuff and so on. Okay. Are you going to be able to do that again next time? So this is called sell on the news. That's what traders do. They don't care about three hours from now. All they want to know is what's happening right this minute. So uh, that was why the stock sold off. Well, it its high was 137, and it closed yesterday at 131. So it's not like it really fell off the cliff. Now, Home Depot, this is according to Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley says they had their best quarterly performance in about 30 years. Now, that's pretty good. They saw their same store sales jump up by 25%, and uh, Morgan Stanley says the company's strong run should continue. Um, their quarterly sales were up 23%. As I was saying, a lot of folks, real estate, you know, home improvement, all that kind of thing, uh, hit 283 on Friday, uh, had traded at 290 this week, uh, and it pays a 2% dividend. Target, oh yeah, Target really, that's that's been the story the last couple of weeks. It blew past every forecast for its fiscal second quarter because it attracted millions of new customers online. You see, just as an aside, look what Amazon has done. Amazon being in this business has caused all of these folks to basically reinvent themselves, and then you had the virus thing which caused them to be even more focused. Uh, you can tell who the good companies are. How do they respond and to and how 
How quickly and how well do they respond? And I'd say, as you're seeing these earnings, here's some fine companies that have done a good job of both of that. Now, let's see here. Uh, their same-store sales, Target same-store sales, drove up profits by 80%. That's crazy. I mean, you know, once again, it's just hard to do, hard to uh, replicate. Their stock traded at, uh, closed at 153, having hit 156 earlier in the week. So, you know, uh, still a great company. Lowe's, uh, quarterly earnings, 375 versus 295 expected. Oh, my goodness. Revenue also above forecast. Same store sales up 34%. Um, their uh, digital sales up 135%. They're at a new high at 161.72. Zoom, everybody's favorite little electronic uh, get-together device. Their shares are up 307% just this year, just from January. And they're trading at 289 right now. And then everybody's favorite electric car company, Tesla jumped up uh, Thursday to hit an all-time high of 2021. Uh, it's up 45% in August. It's quintupled in value this year. <laughs> a little bit of it had something to do with this uh, stock split, which uh, as of yesterday, anyone who bought shares up until and including yesterday qualifies for the five-for-one split. Now, the stock closed at 2049, so... And it hit a 2095 for a high. So now here, here's an interesting thing. If you bought the shares, Tesla shares, Friday uh, at 2095, four, two, one, four, one, two, call it 413, 413 shares. Um, no, if you had, <laughs> never mind, I'm not going to get into the math on this thing. I'll just confuse everybody. If you had 100 shares Friday, uh, on the, in a couple weeks' time, you're going to have 500 shares, but it will be each of those shares will be worth one-fifth of what they were on Friday. That's just how it goes. So uh, you, can buy, you can buy the shares starting Monday for uh, uh, a one-fifth price, but it's basically still the same, same company. Now, um, the... Equity, the stock, again, up 400% this year. It was up four and a quarter percent this yesterday. So it's uh, it's an interesting story for sure. Uh, and then finally, uh, just because, I, I had a couple others, but we'll stop with this one. John Deere, uh, everybody's uh, green equipment guy, uh, earnings well above an estimate. They earned 257 versus 126. Uh, well, and revenue ahead of forecast. The deer said uh, they raised their full year outlook, uh, hit a new high, 202.95. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, these are, how would I say, these aren't fancy companies that we're talking about here. These are, you know, the basic stuff. These are the companies that are the building blocks, the basic blocks of our economy. And they're doing well, and they're making money, and they're continuing to grow. Now, you can't do that in a bad economy. You can't do that when things are terrible. So, you know, all this angst about the economy, I think, is a little overdone. I mean, sure, it's we don't know what's going to happen uh, 
but I think you can see uh, just based on some of the actions by folks that people are ready to get back to work and uh, let's get this thing started again. So uh, again, I still feel very positive about the markets coming forward. Now, in her book, Bull, a lady named Maggie Mahar, M-A-H-A-R, wrote that the problem is that much of the information that investors want and think they need is just that, information, not knowledge, unquote. Information and knowledge are not the same. You know, good investors read a tremendous amount of information, of course, but they're just more selective with what they read and pay attention to. So, here's a couple of things to help you become perhaps more selective in your reading and uh, paying attention to uh, news events. Avoid explanation of random events. Pay more attention to the context. You know, folks can't stand the idea, in most cases, that Events are random and unexplainable, so they actually try to attach meaning to things like stocks fall 2% as investors react to bad manufacturing data, rather than the more honest stocks fall because, well, they do that sometimes. You know, you're never going to see that because <laughs> that headline writer be out of a job. So instead of reading explanations of what the market's doing, instead pay attention to what the market's doing in historical context. For instance, the next time stocks have a down day, remember that stocks have a down day on average, on average, every other day. The next time stocks have a decline of 10%, the, the old-fashioned no uh, correction, remember that they've done that almost every year since the Civil War. And for those of you who didn't do too well in history, that's 1865. The next time we have a recession, remember that no one in history, no one in history, has made it to the fifth grade without living through at least one recession. Kind of puts all that stuff in perspective, doesn't it? You know, trying to explain market moves gives us the impressions that we can actually predict the future. Uh, no. Looking at market moves in historical context reminds us to ignore the noise that we can do. Now, another thing, avoid breaking news. Pay more attention to the broader trends. I have all kinds of research stuff, and I don't know. Anyhow, I found this headline from June of 2010. Uh, it could have been from anywhere, but it, the point is, it, it said stocks plunge after a weak jobs report. Okay, you hear that fairly frequently. Well, there was a bad jobs report on June 4th, 2010, and stocks did drop that day. But 10 years later, who cares? As a matter of fact, the initial jobs report then was revised to show three times as many jobs created than I originally thought. And the S&P has since returned a significantly high number to its investors. Those must-read headlines from June 4, 2010 are now irrelevant and forgotten. The broader trend, jobs, stocks, that's all that mattered for investors. You know, breaking news is designed to tug at your emotions, give you a sense of urgency, and react now. And that's exactly when you're prone to making bad decisions. Broader trends are where and when the money's made. We have a phrase in the business. The trend is your friend. And so if you trade with the trend in either direction, you'll live to see another day. You know, that's kind of how it works. Now, another point, avoid strong opinions. Pay more attention to people who talk about their mistakes. 
Now, a psychologist named Philip Tetlock has done a lot of work in, on the science of forecasts. I think one of his most interesting findings is that analysts are the that are the most confident in their predictions actually have some of the worst track records, while those with the best records are constantly questioning their beliefs. See, the media loves confidence and hates wavering views, so the analysts who effectively uh, yell the loudest and pound their chest the, the most get the spotlight. So this explains another of Mr. Tetlock's findings. He said that the analysts with the highest media profile have some of the worst track records. If you look at some of these uh, talking heads that you see on CNBC at all, uh, and then if you can indeed find a record of their recommendations, you'll find that spotty might be the best way to categorize what it is they have come up with over time. The good guys don't go on TV for the most part. Um, now, the more detailed an analyst becomes, the more prone they are to overthinking and confirmation bias. It's better to be mostly right than precisely wrong, as the saying goes. Well, instead of paying attention to strong, loud opinions, how about giving more weight to those who talk about why they could be wrong, what they've learned from past mistakes, and those who forecast in probabilities rather than certainties? They're probably less entertaining, but they're likely to give you good advice that you can actually use and benefit from. And also, uh, avoid elaborate interpretations. Pay more attention to the handful of variables that matter most. You know, most 300-page books could probably be summarized in 30 pages. And the same one-tenth rule of thumb is true for most, for sure, most financial news and analysis. You don't need to know the nitty-gritty details about finance or the economy. The big stuff, how much you need to save to retire, the valuation metrics, industries driving economic growth, etc., those tell you uh, most of what matters. Now, Goldman Sachs uh, is changing gears, raised its 2020 year-end S&P 500 target to 3,600. It's about 7% higher than where we are now. Uh, and uh, they had, and it was previously at three thousand. Their chief equity strategist, David Costin, wrote, uh, "The S and P has returned to its pre-pandemic high, but the building blocks supporting the price have shifted dramatically." So, if you're feeling uneasy right now, and that all this market stuff doesn't make sense, and there's more than two or three of you out there, I know that for a fact. I, you can be sure you're not the Lone Ranger. You know, it's like, should I take profits? Are stocks priced correctly? Should I buy back at lower levels? Those are normal questions, and always. I mean, people always ask themselves these questions at highs. You know, I hate to be the uh, proverbial bearer of good news, but the data makes pretty compelling case why you should not do any of those things. If you look out over one and three months periods, stocks actually do show worse returns on average after having hit all-time highs versus all other days. So, if you are a short-term trader, then maybe it does make sense to lock in gains as long as you're using a tax-deferred vehicle, meaning like a retirement account. Probably not, but maybe. But if you're not a short-term trader, then you'll see that all-time highs are nothing to fear. Returns after hitting all-time highs are actually higher. 6, 12, and 24 months out. Uh, 
rising prices attract buyers. It's pretty simple. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, it, it's important to understand base rates. It's also important to understand that averages only tell you what happened on average. The fastest bear market ever it came directly after an all-time high. You know, what the heck? All-time highs aren't an all-clear signal. No such thing exists. But neither are they a sign that the rug is about to be pulled. I mean, I get so tired of hearing these folks, oh, it's an all-time high, so look out for the bottom. Well, obviously, they haven't been doing this very long. That's all I can say. You know, uh, gosh, how much time do we have? Not very much. Just two quick things in closing that. There are two areas in which individual investors can apply some behavioral finance lessons. One's their portfolio. Second's their tradio, trader, trading. That's good, Mike. In their portfolios, I think you see three classic errors. Folks often own too much of the things they're more familiar with. They tend to buy stocks that are, you know, in their states, stocks that are in their own country. And, of course, they often buy stocks that they themselves work for, which can be very dangerous because it could lead to a lack of diversification. Second classic error is what they call the endowment effect. People tend to value things that they have more than things that they might get. So, in other words, if you've inherited something from grandma or perhaps you had a stock that's grown to be a very large percentage, you don't want to get rid of these because you're overly attached to them. And that can lead to a very lopsided portfolio as well. And don't forget, you know, uh, taxes. You're not going to gain anything. Once you own something for a year and a day, that will always be your best tax rate. So don't use that as an excuse for not to sell. Well, I believe we've hit the limit here. So uh, thank you very much for listening. I do appreciate it a lot. We'll be back uh, next Saturday, live and in radio color, to talk with you about the markets and the economy. I thank you again for listening. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. You've been listening to Money Management. Be sure and listen to Opus 111's Mike Mayo every Saturday morning on 920 AM KXLY in Spokane. Stream the show on KXLY920.com or subscribe to this podcast and we'll bring the latest episode to you. Security is offered through KMS Financial Services.